This is Kari Gale. And this is Tony Critz. Welcome to the Pilgrim Lost Podcast, a space for those who wander and wonder. All right. You ready for this? Yeah. Good morning. Good morning, Tony. It's a rainy, it's a rainy Saturday in Portland, Oregon. Well, that is just shocking. It is shocking. But uh, it's good to be with you. What's, uh, what are you drinking this morning? Um, I'm still on my, okay, I was corrected last week. I think I have it now. Rooibos. Is that right? Close. I say rooibos. Rooibos. Yes. No, someone actually texted me, a friend of mine who listens to the podcast, and said, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to try out the new, the new pronunciation. Rooibos. Why is that so hard? Rooibos. Rooibos. I'm drinking, do you want to guess? Um, coffee. The Russian Earl Grey that oh you bought gosh. for me. That's so exciting. I brewed it this morning and I brought it. I didn't even taste it until I got here because I wanted I wanted to taste it with you present because oh you bought it. Oh my gosh, I did. I so. Literally, Tony last week was talking about this tea. We were having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think we were on mic when we talked about this. No, bit. no. And he, we were telling this very like emotional story. But yeah, I, I, I lived in the former Yugoslavia during the Kosovo War, and it was really, really a hard, difficult, super hard time of my life. And we were just up against the wall, and I had, I had this really, this job with a lot of responsibility, and we got evacuated by the State Department once. It was a super intense life. But in the old city up on the hillside, you, from my apartment, you would cross this stone bridge and go into this like cobblestone hillside of what they would call the old city. And you'd like go down this boulevard and then down a little road and then turn through an arch, down a little path, and then there was this little stone building and inside was this tea house. And in the tea house I would go in and Mila would make me a cup of tea. And it was, there were different teas, but a lot of times she would make me this tea that she called Russian Earl Grey. And I haven't had it since Macedonia. And then I mentioned it to you and you jumped online and found it for me. In a pro- approximately 30 seconds. Yeah, it took you nothing. It's just... And then I sent it so through, now... through Amazon to yeah. your house. And I said, I'm buying this for you. Here it is. And now I'm having a sensory memory. Hold on. I'm going back to Macedonia. Hold on. Okay. What do you think? Oh wow! <laughs> oh, I'm there. I'm there. Does it? Okay. Is it does no, it, I'm back. Does now. it feel like? Is it? Is it? You know, because sometimes those memories, it's so good in your memory. Yeah. And then you actually have it in reality, and you're like, wow, maybe it was the time and the motion, the moment. Is it as good as you remember? No, it's not as good as I remember. <laughs> it's good. It's very, very good. But um, I think I was so sensory starved then, I and mean, we were living such a simple life. Yeah. And um, and it was such a comfort to disappear maybe, to this place. Maybe it was the kindness of Mila that really affected so that true. tea. Because I, I find that those things, like that cocktail at that bar with that really nice bartender who would listen to my stories, really made that cocktail special where probably it wasn't the cocktail. It was definitely the listening ear. The moment. The moment. Yeah. The moment and all of that. And they're just, I think there are times when we're just more alive. Yeah. We're yeah. more... Um, it's like all of the all of the switches inside of us have been turned on mm-hmm. by the experience and the atmosphere and the person and the conversation, and suddenly everything everything is more technicolor. Every flavor is more dimensional. Every Absolutely. smell is more clear and obvious Vibrant. and noticeable. Yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. Well, speaking of listening ears, ooh, I we have a special guest today, who is I would say. The best listening ear in my life. Ooh. And we mentioned him last week, so you might have heard his name and 
gotten super excited if you know who he is. Because if you know him, you will be very excited. You will love him. You will love him. <laughs> so we are welcoming Tom Stutzman to Pilgrim Lost today. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. It's great to be here. Tom, where'd <laughs> you come intro. from? I, I just popped in. There's like a little, <laughs> little basement sub door. Did you smell the tea? I smelled the tea. Went down to the basement and did the crawl space up to your tiny house. And <laughs> <laughs> avoided the rain. That's good because it really is very wet today. Yeah. So like on our last podcast, we talked about the dangerous dance of community. Mm. Yes. And um, Tom, we talked about you a fair amount. I know. I listened and I felt my ears burning. So uh, we're, we're in Kari's tiny house right now. And Tom lives in the mothership across the yard. <laughs> the, brothership. the brothership. The brothership. Really, yeah, it is the brothership. The brothership. Sure. And uh, we're so glad you're here. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this all week. So Tom and I have been friends for how many years now? I, I believe we, it's kind of, it kind of fezzes now, but it's been since, I think really since 2013, I think. 12, no, 13. Was it when I, right when we went on the, I went on the Camino that we got to know each other? Right around that time though. I think so. Because I remember meeting you post Camino. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, I actually, in fact, was dating, uh, one of the, one of the guys that used to live in the house, <laughs> which is kind of a funny story. Lovely, lovely gentleman. Um, and that's how I got to know Tom just because I would be coming over and, and, uh, seeing Tom and hanging out in their house. And he's such a, as we shared last week, or I shared last week, he's such a, um, welcoming influence in the house. So mm. I... I immediately got drawn to him and would find myself for hours in the kitchen with Tom and then realized, oh, I should probably go <laughs> hang out with the guy that I'm dating. But that ended fairly quickly and um, and our relationship grew and lasted and really grew because we um, we became friends. We started to, to get to know each other and then um, really it all kind of came about after I came back from the Camino and started sharing with you and with other friends about the Camino and it sparked something in you. Share mm -hmm. Can you, can you yeah. um, talk a little bit about that? Well, there's kind of a confluence of two things that um, sparked my interest in the Camino. And one was um, hearing your stories, reading your, your books and both this notion of being in, in between or liminal space and carving mm -hmm. out deliberate time for either deconstruction or processing. And I was in a place I'd been teaching for eight years and I was starting to burn out and was hearing your stories about the Camino. And that was kind of like occupying the back of my mind as far as like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I ended up dating this guy. And one of the first conversations we had, um, he had said he was just traveling through Spain and France. I was like, oh, were you on the Camino? And his eyes lit up, and I was so proud of myself that I had learned about the Camino through you, Kari. And I was like, oh, I sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, he came and visited me in Portland, and we were driving out to the coast, and he was regaling me with some of these stories, and I found myself paying less and less attention to him and more and more attention to this, like, this feeling that I had inside that I felt like part of my heart was reactivated. And so I feel like your story and your journey and your illustrations kind of provided this fertile soil mm. or this seed to kind of be planted. And, um, and so, so yeah, um, that, that got the, the ball rolling. And then I ended up quitting my job, taking a year off and spending three months in Spain. So, 
You say that so light, light. You know, like everybody does. Yeah, so. <laughs> I know, as you do, as you do. Uh, and actually, I want to go back first before we get into the Camino a little bit more. Um, just the fact that we're here in this tiny house is really because of your generosity. Hmm. And the fact that anyone out there in the world who has had anything to do with tiny houses or watched tiny house shows, which seems to be quite a lot, um, is, is really shocked by the fact that my friend let me camp my house out in his front yard. Not his backyard, his front yard. Right. And that invitation to live in community uh, is very... It, for some people, it it is like kind of what we talked about last week. We talked about this invitation to be in kind of the beautiful and terrible mess of community. And so when I was thinking about doing this tiny house, really you were the first person that popped up. And I shared, I think, I think I shared in a pod about in the conversation with you. I was living in Scotland at the time during mm-hmm. my travels mm-hmm. and... I, we were on a Skype conversation and you were listening to me talk about the tiny house. And in the conversation, in my mind, I thought, oh my goodness, not only would Tom's property be great to put my tiny house on, I would love to live in a space near this person and around this person. And that's something you don't really plop on someone and say, hey, (laughs) can I put my house on your lawn? Uh, But about, I think about 10 minutes later in the conversation, without me prompting you, you invited me. You said, hey, I think you should put your tiny Mm -hmm. house on my property. And it was this brilliant, beautiful moment of, you know, the serendipitous moment Mm -hmm. of these, this, just these two people coming together. And I actually said to you a few minutes later, or maybe not, maybe not in the same conversation, (laughs) but I said, hey, if there's a point when you want to say i think i made a mistake over i've made a terrible mistake terrible mistake <laughs> redo uh, is your house that big? um because it kept actually growing in size too at first it was a smaller tiny house and then it was a little bit longer yeah. and then it was a little bit longer Started out eight feet <laughs> just it was a bed it was I have a, a tent with a plug that's <laughs> exactly and then it became a 24 feet yeah. you know structure um but i <clears throat> i'm very curious how in your life, you've reached a point where, where um, potentially financially, you don't really need to have live live in the way that you do. And you invite people into your home. You have community. You have three roommates living with you. Sometimes you've had four. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what really started that process, and why did you decide mm-hmm. that? And and then eventually, you know, inviting me to be on this property. Like, really, what what started that process for you? Thank you for the very generous character <laughs> sketch that you And um, so a couple different things, but just um, you, it is good to have renters. So um, that is beneficial sure, for me. Sure, so, absolutely. I, mean, I know that teachers often really are at the top scale of, of <laughs> earners. So um, I feel really lucky that 10 years ago I was able to get a house and that was with help of my family. Um, so I was able to buy at the right time. It was foreclosed and um, my dad and I were able to remodel and restore a lot of things. So my housing costs are much lower than the average person in Portland. Um, But also the reality for the past 10 years, I've needed renters. And um, now I'm kind of coming at a place where I'm, I'm more solvent, but it's, it still makes sense that it's a mutual beneficial agreement that um, I want to provide 
low-income housing for my friends. And it gives you more freedom. <clears throat> and it gives me more freedom to start kind of reallocating and um, prioritizing what are my financial goals and where am I headed with my life. So um, it's not 100% just me being this self selfless, generous person. No. I know. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also on an emotional, relational level, it's, it's great not to live alone. Um, I was an only child growing up and... Um, have two wonderful parents and and had family but i didn't really have many cousins that were my age that lived around me and then i grew up in a in a neighborhood that didn't have kids my age so it was kind of a lonely childhood and then once i hit college i was part of a fraternity and was used to living with like 30 plus people and then moving up to portland moved into a house and so i've been very used to just that's the norm like it's expected to be sharing spaces with people um, so getting a house, it was financially beneficial for me, actually financially necessary, and also it was culturally a normal thing. And then um, fast forward as I've come out and embraced like me being this gay queer person, um, being in community is this kind of like radical notion that goes against this traditional American isolationism of like the the husband, wife, two kid, nuclear family is the ultimate way in which we express um, lineage and um, community and, and that's the norm. And so with me being just very authentic with what I want and inviting people in that we have this family, it also feels like this kind of radical pushback against um, heteronormativity. And um, that doesn't mean everybody has to be queer to be a part of it, but it just feels like this alternative way of reimagining how to be in family and chosen family or an expansive version of what family really is. Hmm. I love that. And it, it, for, for me being invited into that as a single woman who is in her late, late, (laughs) 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 I'm turning 48 in less than a month. I can own it. It's privilege. You own it well. It is a privilege to yeah. age. It only took you thirty seconds to say it. Well done. <laughs> hey, I'm working on it. I'm a, I'm a work in progress, but that that um, you know, at one point I was doing that normative husband wife trying to have kids do the, that thing, and that was that was the. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? No, no, yeah. no. And 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 that was what I was uh, hoping for, and was on that path, and then. When my life imploded, mm-hmm. I, that wasn't a possibility anymore. And so to have a space that I can be a single woman who is doing th- a lot of things differently in her life, to be welcomed into a, a family that doesn't have those, it's not in that so, sort of a, a structure, is, mm-hmm. is so good. And I think so many people do long for that. And that when I shared last week uh, how when I talk about our... our um, our house patterns and rituals and cooking mm-hmm. and how we do that together, yeah. people do really light up because they see the the beauty in that and they see, um, I think they just, so many people don't have that experience in their life, even even if they have that family structure yep. in place. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, and, and Tony, you, you, have, you are in a normative family, but mm-hmm. I, I know that we've talked about longing for community in different ways. And how, um, for example, I was just talking to someone yesterday and I said, you know, I've been dating someone for a lovely man for a, a year. And um, yeah. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that is a big congratulations for me. But 
I enjoy so many different facets of community. <clears throat> I would never expect him to fulfill all of those yeah. communal needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think when you're, I was younger, I really did. I expected my spouse to be kind of all the things. And when that didn't work out, that was that was this there was this loss of almost a I was betrayed by this idea mm -hmm. not necessarily by him but this idea that he could fill everything and I love the fact that I have so many different groups of community in my life now mm -hmm. um, that I don't depend on him for everything because he shouldn't have to provide all of that mm -hmm. so um, so this space and this this living this living situation that I have has been really um, rich in that way mm -hmm. yeah thank you for giving us more a little yeah, bit of background sure. on that um, um i'm oh go ahead i was just gonna say like i feel within that that pattern is this imposed expectation that we are um limitless and it's just if we try hard enough and we do the right things and we follow the right patterns then we're full and it's a weakness especially for i for the dominant culture to express vulnerability and want to impose outside structure to ensure that we have some family connections and and um, it takes us time to I, what am I trying to say? Um, we aren't taught to be mindful and to be um, creative of how to engage relationships so they really meet our needs. We aren't taught to be right. mindful of figuring out like what do we really need. We think that if we fulfill these patterns, then our needs will automatically be met. And right. then we don't have the vocabulary or the discipline to identify when those needs aren't being met. And then I think we experience shame that we've done something wrong as opposed to realizing the patterns that we've committed to were actually insufficient to begin with. Absolutely. Absolutely. What were you going to say, Tony? Well, I was going to pivot because I... I, we kind of got started on your pilgrim story, yeah. and I really want to hear it because I've never heard it. Ooh. I know Kari probably. Yeah, let's jump back in. Let's just jump back in. You know, the podcast is called <laughs> Pilgrim Lost, and let's get lost in your story. I'm super curious. Great. Um, so, 2015, when I was 36. Um, so, so young. So young. <laughs> what a wee child I was, with fewer wrinkles and more hair. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, I <clears throat> started to realize that like teaching, um, was burning me out and I was seeing this pattern of where, um, teaching in mainstream ed was going and I didn't like it. It was, ex it was, um, exhausting more effort and, um, time than I was willing to give it. And at that same time, like teaching felt like a, a very jealous lover that if, I was in the process of really coming to myself and figuring out like who is Tom Stutzman and previous to that time I had been trying to avoid that so much of being closeted and dealing with homophobia and some like internalized homophobia and, and anxiety and depression so teaching was this perfect vehicle for me to pour all of myself into and it was a wonderful distraction oh. that was also killing me and um, and so by the time I came out that last year of teaching um, I was at a crossroads of realizing I'm jealous for my time back. I'm jealous for my life and I don't, I feel really imbalanced and I was seeing patterns in education. And I realized like I don't have the agency of change within my job to get the work-life balance that I want. And then at that same time, I, um, I was just in a position where I could take the time off for a year. And, um, 
and I was able to quit my job. And then if I needed to come back to it within a year, then I could. So I had all of these like great like safety, safety nets, nets yeah. that is really unusual, especially for people in liminal spaces. So I felt very fortunate. Um, and so quit and then um, was just really deliberate. I, I wanted something different. I walked into this new season fully understanding that I'm like, there's a big change happening. I want to pursue integration. I was mindful. I was reading a book called um, The Art of Pilgrimage. And and then I also you know, brought people that were close to my community. And I said, hey, I'm taking this year off. I want you to come and tell me a story about myself, and I want your blessing. And so there's this intentional like night of people coming around and <laughs> kind of blessing not just my time in Spain, but like this bigger arc of the year and me acknowledging like something is shifting and I don't know what, and I want people to bless me in that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I bought my plane ticket very intentionally on the first day that teachers report back to school. So <laughs> <laughs> that felt really good. And then I spent, um, three months in Spain and the first six weeks were just bumping around being a tourist and then doing some Spanish, um, relearning. And then I started my Camino on October 1st. Wow, late. Late. And that was really intentional. One, I didn't want to miss a Portland summer. Two, I didn't want to have to deal with the crowds because I'm not an early riser and I didn't want to have to like rush to find housing. And then three, I didn't really want to be in these huge throngs of pilgrims. I was wanting to kind of be more um, alone. And so um, I had that. And then there's also this, um, I one of my friends, James, interviewed me a month before I went and it was this hour long interview of what my intentions were and what my hopes were. And I just re-listened to it last night. It was just, mm. it was very interesting to hear myself from five years ago. And I've read through my journals and, um, one of the things <clears throat> that I, um, borrowed was this mythology of the labyrinth and looking at the Camino as this labyrinth for me and the labyrinth ends up having like two different, meanings on a Christian level. The labyrinth is this place that you start and end in the same place. It's not a place where you get lost. It's a place of intentional, slow wandering. You eventually get to the center of the labyrinth, which is a symbol of like coming to the center of your question, yourself, of the divine, whatever. And then <clears throat> you take what centering or, or learning that you got, and then you come back into the real world. And it's been meant to be this meditative thing. Then we have this Greek mythology of the labyrinth, which was a prison for a king's shameful bastardized son that's a monster, that innocents were thrown to it. And and as I re-listened to the interview with James, he had asked me, he's like, well, what's your minotaur as you're coming going to Spain? Like, what is the beast that you're going to fight? And in the book that I was reading, The Art of Pilgrimage, which is where I kind of got this from, um, the author had said, when people go into the labyrinth, you don't know if you're going to find an abomination or a god. And I remember underlining that, and I took that with me to Spain. And and then in Spain, there's this huge bullfighting culture. So in almost every city, I would see these little bulls. And it was just this interesting reminder of like, hmm. Hmm, what is my minotaur? And do I want to kill it? Is this something to kill, or is this something to embrace that's divine? And then... Um, embarked upon my Camino. And one of the things that happened in late October was I woke up in the middle of the night and, and I felt like 
whatever my inner voice is or my God voice or whatever that's inside of me at like three in the morning <coughs> saying like, you need to come out on Facebook. And that was like the one part of my life that I hadn't, that I'd been beholden to, to fear that I, I could come out personally and like professionally, but like on Facebook, I haven't made this proclamation. So a lot of friends from back home and, and family, extended family didn't know. And I was like, oh shit, that is not what I want. And it's 2 a.m. I'm in this big room with people on bunk beds. Everybody's snoring and I'm wide awake. And I'm like, really? Like this is not, this, this was not the plan. I wanted professional advice. Like what direction am I having with like vocation and all these other things. And then, um, walked on it for a couple days mm. and then in the um stayed at a coffee shop and then like journaled out how i wanted to articulate um my coming out story and um on halloween i posted it on facebook and it was just this really interesting notion of like halloween is where we don masks and pretend to be other people and i felt like it was the exact reverse that i'm taking off a mask and and i remember like pushing post and I was really tempted to turn the comment section off because I didn't know what was going to happen. And mm. I was like, Nope, Nope. I need to embrace this. And I pushed post and I was like, like I was like, oh, wow. I can't undo this. And then I was like, okay, walk. And then I remember walking all day and it was so bizarre not to be able to check mm-hmm. that day. Oh, and yeah. then it wasn't until I got to the next place that, um, I ended up checking and it was a really lovely celebration. So, um, um, all to say, um, I think the Minotaur wasn't something to be killed, but to be embraced. That Mm. my biggest shame, which is what the Minotaur was, that I'd been hiding and trying to keep imprisoned and feeding so much of my energy to to suppress, was I finally felt like I was lost and discovered it and realized, no, this is something that is divine and is Mm. not something to be shunned. And so I feel like both, both the notions of the labyrinth I guess when I'm operating or when we're operating from our shadows, the labyrinth is a prison and we're operating in, in clarity and kind of embrace, then it becomes this, this journey that draws us deeper and deeper into ourselves. So that's loosely one of the themes, the overarching things that I remembered when I was listening to the interview yesterday. So nothing to elaborate on there. (laughs) (laughs) And see, (laughs) wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I think it's interesting because so many different people, when they talk about going on the Camino, they have, some people go with literally no Mm pre-thought and they're, I'm going to go see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know, there might be someone in this room across the table. (laughs) (laughs) I can't guess who. (laughs) But even, and I'm not, I'm not talking about like buying a book. I'm talking about right. <laughs> I'm talking about more of that emotional clarity of here's what I'm looking for, here's what I want to discover and mm-hmm. and and certainly there's a, a balance of of leaving things open but then having intentionality, mm-hmm. you know, like I want to I want to be open to what happens <clears throat> and not necessarily have an expectation of what I'll discover. Um but I really I loved how um how you were sort of taking these two ideas and and so beautifully illustrated and, and apropos, but so different in, mm. in their, you know, the Greek mythology and then the, the, the more spiritual labyrinth that we're used mm-hmm. to, or at least I'm used to. Um, and yet they were both so accurate and so metaphorical for what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I grew up in a world where um, language was very rigid 
and accuracy is what was valued. Mm -hmm. And so words were tools. They were not art. Mm. And Mm. I love the freedom you had to find your own vocabulary Mm. and to assign your experiences terminology that for you was loaded with your own meaning. And I, the, my adulthood has been about trying to find that, you know, there was this, there was, I, there's like this rigid, uh, fishbowl of words <clears throat> that I was given that was mm-hmm. set on the pulpit of my church. And yeah. I had to use those words in a certain way and I couldn't journey outside of that. And, um, and I just want to take that fishbowl and shatter it on the mm-hmm. floor and go, no, you know, how do I find language? So I love that. And then I love hearing you having the courage to ceremonialize your story. Mm-hmm. You told the story about inviting your friends in to tell you a story about yourself and speaking. You told the story about um, sitting and getting the recording and like, uh, climbing inside what you were about to do and, and a friend and, and encouraging you to find the words. And then those mm. words became mm. part of the scaffolding for the walking. And I love the fact you posted on Facebook and then <laughs> you had to walk. Yes. You had to have a oh, day long ceremony Bending. of sitting in mm. the unknown yeah. and create, literally creating the vacuum. Mm. Cause if not, where I'm so tempted to run down the road ahead of the experience and never take the time to steep yeah. in the moment mm. and that you created that ceremony. I just I found all that amazing. Mm. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's an amazing story. And I've heard pieces of it before. One thing I did want to, that you just remarked upon that I wanted to also comment on w- was I've never been around a person who has been, has so boldly invited people to, for example, that blessing that you're the first person in my life where I think sometimes as people, we wait. I'm so embarrassed. I to don't invite other people oh, to talk to me yes, about me, about me. Mm. Right. And, and so coming to your house that night and being a part of that, I think all of us in that room were so not only so glad and honored to be invited into it. It was really this instruction for us on how to Mm -hmm. ask people to speak into our lives. Mm -hmm. And I totally copied you and you you were already off in Spain. (laughs) So side uh, alongside this journey that Tom was having, I had also, uh, I had lost my job and decided to sell all my possessions and head off to my European trip, which which we talked about. So I was, (coughs) I headed off to Portugal to walk the, the port, the Camino Portuguesa, literally at the same time that Tom is walking the Camino Frances. So if you can imagine the map, I'm walking north through Portugal, and Tom is walking east through Spain, and we just decided... Wait. West. West. Yeah, both (laughs) heading towards the same city. (laughs) Yes, we're both heading towards Santiago. Directions were never my strong suit. Um, But luckily there were were signs pointing me in the right (laughs) way. But we decided just very casually to say, will we arrive Mm. in the same spot at the same time? Of course, we were going to arrive in Santiago. We didn't plan that. But to go back to what I borrowed from you... Before I left, I was so Im- I was so impacted by what you had done. I invited all my friends to come and mm. and do the same thing, and I wanted it visually. So I had them write down on a piece of paper um, a blessing, mm. a travel blessing, mm. and it could have been for just the Camino, but really it was for my my uh, longer trip. Yeah. And then I took I actually took them with me. 
like I, you don't take that much on the Camino, but I took them with me. And when I had a heart, I, I, I doled them out like, um, like treasure. I, mm. I would, I would, I was having a hard day. I would pull out a blessing and I hadn't read them before. So they were so these good. beautiful little treasures and, um, and I would read these words of encouragement and belief and it would just give me what I need. And also felt like I had carried my community with me mm. in these, in these little blessings, but I would never have done that had I not, had I not come to, to mm. your ceremony. So go you. Go you. That's Woo. awesome. So we um we talk about how <laughs> Pilgrim Lost is inspired by the Camino, but mm-hmm. focused on the everyday. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to hear you just pontificate on <laughs> these are, these are experiences I've had in my pilgrimage, whatever form that pilgrimage uh-huh. takes. And this is this is how I'm trying to integrate meaning into my everyday life. These uh-huh. are some these are some of the bridges, the connections, the ways that these fire mm-hmm. seeds from those experiences have lit up my whole life. So mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole labyrinth story sounds like <laughs> super sexy and like everything's just really so intentional sexy. and like a blessing ceremony and then I won <laughs> every night and it was lovely. Um, but it, it wasn't, it was kind of a shit show. Um, I, I had my journal and, and, and it, I would, um, in my mind before I reread my journal, like last year, I, I thought like, Oh yeah, every day I was doing like my, um, journaling at night and I ended up kind of following the, um, the Ignatian examine where I'd reflect on the day and what was my biggest source of consolation or biggest sources of desolation. And then just kind of had like a T chart and bullet pointed some ideas. It's very teacherly of you. It is very teacherly of me. So uh, (laughs) I'm a graphic organizer. And then anyway, um, and then I reread it last year and these big moments on the Camino, like me coming out and then this other part that I'll share in a moment, I just didn't write about. And it was like, Stutzman, what are you, what were you thinking, child? Like you, you, I, w- I was like dumbfounded that these things that have stayed with me post Camino weren't actually documented, which made me think I'm like, did it happen? Like, was it really that big of a deal? Or was it such a big deal that like, I didn't have the capacity to really, it was so overwhelming. Or is that how myth begins? That I have these like vestiges of memory that as time goes on, it builds and it just, it more occupies this like imaginal, emotional realm that I make meaning as time goes on. Which I, I mean, Kari and I, you you and I have talked about like what the Camino meant and then what it continues to mean. And it's this ever evolving like, um, application to my life. And, and I guess that's the beauty that it, it has so much power and it's so big that with each evolution of life, then it takes on a new layer of meaning. How's that tea? It's good. Good. <laughs> Sorry. Don't spill it. Keep going. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, yeah, so I, it was really interesting not to have these concrete words and I'm also coming from a very strict fundamentalist background. So the written word is truth. Sacrosanct. Is sacrosanct. And emotion or memory or feeling is less than and somehow corruptible. And and if and you have this notion of like fact and then things that are true, but they can also be fictional. Like so like Lord of the Rings, f- fiction, but there's great truth there. 
but I can't prove it. And so I feel like the same thing with my journal that I have these moments that I can't prove, but they still resonated with me. So I don't know. I think they happened, but, um, <laughs> but I know for a fact on the Camino, the big, one of the big things was this notion of embodiment. And I think this, um, comes from knowing that I've been gay since second grade and then being like growing up in a conservative culture and in a time in America where that was not okay. In my teenage years, um, being living in tandem in California and much like far away from San Francisco being, but being aware of the AIDS crisis. And there is this automatic theological and cultural connection that being gay means that you're going to die. And being gay is rooted in sexuality, which is all about the body. And then with fundamentalism, um, we're taught that the body is corruptible and sinful and your heart is evil and your emotions can't be trusted and um, your body needs to be beaten into submission. So all of these things, like there's this latent theology and this message of the body is terrible. It's not worth effort. It's the only thing that is really worth investing in is your soul. And you can't trust anything in yourself except for someone else's written word. And so I've been trying to like unpack that. And so going on the Camino, which is this huge kinesthetic exercise mm -hmm. and um, by like day 10 or so, and I'm not an athlete. So like this was a big ass ordeal for me. And I remember the first day of going to Rosas Vias and I remember it's raining and like my shoes were shitty. And I remember like getting up to Arissa and I was like, I am going to die. And, um, and it's not, it was like two miles. <laughs> I mean, like the, it, it's such a small, small way of getting there. And I remember like staying there the night and being so ashamed that like, I'm not strong enough. I don't have the inner fortitude to, to keep going. And, um, but then like made it to Roncesvalles, which is like the, the biggest climb. And I was like, oh, I can do this. And then was getting into a good rhythm and like enjoyed my pacer poles. Thank you, Kari. You're welcome. And then um, like 10 days in, suddenly my Achilles started really hurting, both of them. And then the next day they started crunching. And I was like, well, this isn't good. And I remember having dinner with this Australian PT. So that was a nice little um, divine connection. And I was like, hey, my Achilles tendons are crunchy and I'm really in a lot of pain. And she like kind of felt him. She's like, you need to take a week off or you're going to have permanent damage. And I was like, this is not part of the plan. Like I'm going on this pilgrimage to get some type of divine blessing and figure out vocational training. All of my friends just bless me. I have to do all 550 miles. Like I cannot take a week off. I'm supposed to meet Kari there. And, and, and all of these things about like, you are failing at pilgrimage and like, am I doing this right? And am I like, is it because I'm weak? And, and I remember like resting for that day and then coming to an end and I was like, body yet again, you are causing me shame. Mm. Like, I can't trust you sexually. Um, I can't trust you to, to like get me from place A to place B. Like, and there's just like internal monologue of just like body hatred and loathing. And then, um, finally like decided I'm like, this does make the most amount of sense. So I like ended up taking a bus the amount of miles that I would have probably walked for that week and then rested for that week and probably like day three or four in that, um, in my room that I was resting, I remember just coming to a breaking point and thinking like, if, if I presented these messages that I'm giving to my body to any other person, I would, it would be such a toxic relationship and it'd be so abusive. 
And it just was this kind of eye-opening moment of like, oh my God, like I think so poorly of myself and specifically my body. And I have so mm. little compassion about um, what this frame and what this vessel has been able to like endure and carry me through. And so I had this really, like to borrow some Christian terminology, but this very big moment of repentance and just like asking my body for forgiveness and just saying like, I'm so sorry for not appreciating your feet and Achilles. And, and, and mm. I just remember in my room, like kind of just doing a body scan and, and asking for like some type of reparation and, and being more mindful. And so that was the beginning of this integration of like me being embodied. And so I think that like, despite like coming out on Facebook was huge, but on a lifelong thing, this, this moment of me just being able to embrace myself and be grateful for all of this flesh and trust that it is good mm -hmm. and that it is my responsibility to work with him. This is not an it. This is me. Mm. Like my body is not disembodied from my identity. And so recognizing that like this is all of me and like I speak poorly to my Achilles. That's the same thing as me speaking poorly to my heart and, and soul. And um, so I got to walk and then my, I healed up and I got new shoes and I realized like, no, we're, we're good to go. And then, um, and so I got to walk the rest of the Camino with this sense of like gratitude and, and celebration mm -hmm. of my body. And that is, that's continued over the past five years as far as like becoming more comfortable and who I am as a gay man, being comfortable with like turning 40 and like having to shave my head and realize like balding doesn't come, like it doesn't like there's no repair for this. And, and, and uh, again, like recognizing like, this is who I am. Like I can celebrate it or I can try and hide it or I can be ashamed by it. And so the Camino was this catalyst to, to be embodied. And then, and it made me just think back on like, here I believe in this notion of the incarnation that God donned flesh and by donning flesh dignified and deified that this is good. Right. And it, and it just made me wonder, like, how did I get this so wrong? Like, how right. did the church get this so wrong? Right. Like, we are walking incarnations. And and so the Camino really kind of shifted that. And um, and so that's still work that I'm, I'm engaging in today. So I think that's been one of the most significant things that continues. Um, yeah. And just as a person that's been your friend and now living very near to you for the last several years, mm -hmm. I, I see these layers shedding mm. and it's, it's, um, so I used to own a snake. I know this is going to circle back. I didn't know that. Yeah. Sylvia. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvia. She was beautiful. And mm -mm. when a snake sheds their skin, I don't know if you've actually seen it. Mm -mm. Um, it's absolutely beautiful, but they, first they get really cloudy and they almost look like someone painted them with like a, kind of a like an oak, a milky paint huh. and then they slowly crawl out of that skin and what's so amazing is so she has this had this beautiful pattern of orange and red and you know it would get this milky color but then when she would shed the color would be much more intensified mm. it would be like someone lit her up from within and i feel like that mm. that's sort of what i've been seeing you do over these years mm. as you shed these skins and the color of who you are is more vibrant and more you and it's been a it's been a joy to see damn yeah i received that good Ooh. high five <laughs> high five <laughs> thank you yeah <clears throat> Tom, is there anything that you haven't said that mm. you would like to say while the mm. 
microphones are still on. Hmm. This has been great, by the way. Thanks. Yeah. I that really was... enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I think the memory that just comes to me is that first night um, when I, I remember feeling like a failure and stayed at Orissa. And Orissa is this really beautiful guest house. And I remember um, at dinner, there's probably like 30 pilgrims. And we were waiting for supper and the host came out and she said, okay, I want you all, like dinner's almost ready. And they were serving like three courses. Now's your time to everybody stand up, tell us your name, where you're from and why you're doing the Camino. And as I'm sitting here, I'm trying to also be social, but carrying all of this shame that like somehow I failed, not realizing wait a minute, there's 30 other pilgrims that have chosen to do the same thing. So I'm not judging them, thinking they're failures. And and one after another, and uh, people across the board, I mean, you know this, like gener- there's no age average, people from all over the world, um, some families, some single people. And every person stood up and everybody was in transition. Somebody was grieving the loss of a son or a daughter or a spouse grieving a divorce, quitting their job, just finished school, just flunked out of school. But everybody was just like, I'm deliberately interrupting my life and I'm choosing disruption for the sake of something new. Mm-hmm. And and I that was so poignant to me to be around all these people that have chosen to push the, not pause the button, because this wasn't a pause, it was deliberately go in a different direction and i feel that's it's not so un-american it's so um uncapitalist i feel like it's so non-patriarchal and other whatever adjectives that probably sound impressive but like um it it gave me this point in time that there are a lot of other people in the world that have embraced this discipline that when things aren't going well pause and don't just hunker down like take in mental inventory and it's really okay to to step out of that and disrupt the natural flow and figure out some other way to get clarity mm-hmm. and make time for that clarity to happen. And in fact, I think what you're saying is it's okay to be lost. Totally. And to take time yeah. to be lost and that it's not a shameful thing. It's actually a healthy thing to mm-hmm. sit with it and to, <clears throat> to um, find new ways to think about what it is you're experiencing. And that's exactly what you were doing is what I, I did. I, and I think, I think that that possibility is there for everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't, certainly it's helpful to be able to do it in a, in a space that's removed from, from where you live and work. And, but I, yeah. And, and if you don't have a month, then if you have a weekend, (laughs) go find a rustic cabin with with no electricity and sit by a potbelly stove for Mm -hmm. the, for the weekend. If you only have a day, go up to the mountains and just walk and get lost in the trees Mm -hmm. and the, and the, and the view and the vistas. If you only have an afternoon, climb in a kayak or uh, walk along the river or find some way to just break these oppressive patterns that Mm -hmm. we get addicted to because we're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And we want the illusion of control. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we're out of control. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do we go have, absorb a a liminal experience where right now I'm off balance and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then ask the divine, is there anything you want to rewrite right now? Is there anything you want to reveal right now? I just, I love that. Yeah. 
I have one more thing. Do you have yeah. time? Um, yeah. When I was listening to the interview, I had forgotten that I had this experience and and it resonated with me. Um, I was in I was actually in San Francisco before I went on the Camino. I went to Grace Episcopal and they have this really beautiful labyrinth yeah. that's some stone, maybe marble. Um, and I remember like walking that and I was thinking about the Camino and the upcoming year. And um, as I was walking, it struck me that when you're on this path in the labyrinth, you're always moving forward, but the path might have all of these major switchbacks or the path might right. go a, the exact opposite direction that you're trying to go. You're trying to get to the center. And, and I just had this like realization that even though it appears that I might be going back in the same direction or in a way that is like going further from where I intended, I'm still moving forward. So it, if I, if I believe in abundance over scarcity and that God is good and that we have what we need inside of us to really own our situations, and if flourish. we choose to be mindful, then like it's all, we're always moving forward regardless mm. of what direction we might be perceived to go from our own self-conception or what other people around us are telling us. Mm. So. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much for being here. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for having me. Well, Miss Gale, anything we need to say to wrap up? I don't think so. I think this is just a incredible conversation. I feel so grateful. And thank you all for being here and getting lost with us for this time. Um, we, we really are with you, and we hope you feel like you're with us. Um, if you have any thoughts or comments, please leave them. Uh, remember us. Uh, as you go about your life and um, we're looking forward to a 100 day experiment look forward to that next month so we're going to be revealing that soon yes and um, it's been great thanks yeah. Tom thank you thank you for walking with us to stay connected visit us at pilgrimlost.com please comment share and respond 